This episode of Intelligent Medicine is brought to you by Propax with NT Factor, a complete vitamin and mineral formula. NT Factor is the only nutritional formula clinically proven to reduce fatigue, whatever the cause, whether it be age, illness, or just being run down. NT Factor repairs damaged cells, restores healthy bacteria in your digestive tract. Clinical trials have shown NT Factor reduces fatigue by almost half, and it even reverses some symptoms of aging. I've been taking NT Factor for years, and now the 45-day money-back guarantee you have nothing to lose. To order, call 800-982-9158. That's 800-982-9158. Or go to ntfactor.com. That's ntfactor.com. Welcome to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoff, and today we're going to talk to Dr. Tim Spector, author of Spoon Fed, subtitle, Why Almost Everything We've Been Told About Food is Wrong. Uh, that's a book that's uh, just out uh, as a trade paperback. You can find it uh, from the usual sources. Uh, Dr. Spector uh, is an internationally recognized expert in uh, gut health and a professor of genetic epidemiology at King's College in London. Uh, he is also scientific co-founder of ZOE, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, Z-O-E, uh, and a senior researcher of the PREDICT study. And also he's involved in uh, tracking the uh, COVID pandemic over there in the UK uh, as the creator of the widely used COVID symptoms study app which a lot of people are participating in uh, to track the pandemic. Uh, he's an expert in personalized medicine and food policy, as well as the gut microbiome. Uh, his previous book, The Diet Myth, is a bestseller, and he frequently appears on media as well as in uh, academic journals. Uh, so without further ado, here's Dr. Tim Spector. Dr. Spector, it's a pleasure having you on Intelligent Medicine. Thanks for joining us. It's a great pleasure for me too. Well, first of all, you know what's happening over there in the UK. You guys are experiencing uh, the depths of the lockdown. I recently saw a picture of uh, Regent Street, which is kind of like uh, the Rodeo Drive or the uh, Madison Avenue of, of London, and uh, it's like a ghost town. Yeah, the centre of London is empty. Uh, all the shops are empty. All the closed down. Uh, all the restaurants are shut down. Uh, the only place that's really full are all the parks. Um, everyone, everyone is out walking uh, whenever they can. So it's it's a it's kind of a strange uh, situation. Yeah, everybody's working from home. Indeed, and and there's concern about the new UK variant, which is said to be more contagious and potentially more deadly. So uh, you know, while there's encouraging information on the horizon, uh, the light at the proverbial light at the end of the tunnel with the vaccines and perhaps the waning of the pandemic, there's a lot of uh, kind of mixed messages about where it's going. Uh, so in the book, um, spoon fed, the subtitle is "Why Almost Everything We've Been Told About Food Is Wrong." So uh, how did you arrive at uh, that conclusion? Uh, well, it was a bit of a long journey. It didn't happen overnight. Basically, um, I've, I've done various things in my career. I started as a rheumatologist and then epidemiologist and about 25 years ago started the 
twin research units studying 14,000 twins across the UK. And, uh, at, you know, I taught myself genetics. And, of course, twins are ideal to mm -hmm. look at nature v. nurture. Right. But um, the last uh, 10 years, I started getting really interested in why identical twins were so often very different. So these genetic clones uh, would end up with die of different diseases. One would get cancer, the other one wouldn't. Uh, one would be depressed, one would be happy. One would be overweight, the other skinny. And the idea that you know genes were everything suddenly, uh, for me, uh, was dispelled. And I was looking for reasons that identical twins should be different, given they'd lived most, you know, up to the age of eighteen together and had very similar lives. And the one thing that I found uh, that was really different was the gut microbes. And that was a sort of aha moment that said, if the microbes are different, that means, you know, nutrition really is key to our health because they, they're vital for our microbes and explains why uh, we're all so different. And that's really what, where this story began, realizing that we completely disregarded the gut microbiome as a source of our uh, nutrition um, advice. And so, it, it, you know, we'd oversimplified it to calories and fats and sugars and forgot that it's, it's all about this new organ in our body. And this, that for me was that pivotal moment. And then decided to really go into personalized medicine and trying to explain to people uh, really uh, you know, tearing up the textbooks and just saying, you know, you really need to look at nutrition from a completely different angle if you take it from the microbes point of view. And that's, that's really the story. And that got me into um, being a sort of microbiome expert doing this in a huge scale with 1000s of people using my genetic skills and also teaming up with the company Zoe, uh, pronounced Zoe rather than Zoe, uh, to actually do huge experiments on uh, thousands of people, including twins, to prove that everybody responds differently to food. And and now what's great is they now have a, a commercial product in the US that you can actually buy and do your own testing. So that's the, a long journey um, in a short form. But on the way, I really discovered that we have so many food myths, and a lot of them are propagated by the food industry uh, to keep us buying rubbish food. And that, that really is the, the essence of the book where I, I look at 23 uh, obvious food myths and, and dispel them and say why, because of the new science, it, it's obviously untrue. Well, let's tackle uh, some of those uh, popular myths. Uh, you know, and, and first and foremost is the myth that uh, fat uh, is the gunk that accumulates in our arteries. Uh, and it's kind of a very literal uh, concept that, you know, literally this yellow gunk, uh, if we consume a high fat diet, uh, deposits in our arterial walls. And you tackle that in the book, right? Yeah. So we've had this story for about 50 years that f fat was a demon. And I'm sure if fat was called something else that wasn't related to the word for being overweight, mm -hmm. um, we'd probably have a much uh, more uh, better relationship with it. But it isn't. And the, the epidemiology behind all that originally has turned out to be flawed. And we've demonized one part of our diet, 
And that's caused us to overeat on other bits of our diet and ignore some of the very good fats that we could be eating. And uh, is one of the reasons why um, we've all become you know, three times more obese in the last 40 years, the rates of obesity have increased. So it's focusing on one, it's a good example of how uh, humans love a simple story and we're all suckers, and myself included, we're all suckers for the, the single solution to everything that's easy. And of course, as soon as we do that, the food industry loved it because they just reformulated everything as low fat and added all kinds of other nasty chemicals and ingredients, made it even more processed. And as a result, our microbes suffered and our health suffered. And we became used to eating highly processed foods rather than natural fat-containing foods. So I think that's just a really good example. And we know that uh, some people actually do very well on high-fat diets, and some people do badly on them. And there isn't, again, this comes back to this personalization element, there isn't one size fits all. I and mean, we know that from Peter on, you know, some people tolerate ketogenic diets very well, others very badly. And the idea that it's bad for everyone is just complete nonsense. Well, you many know, you, foods, you know, have, have all this stuff, you know, have fats in it, like olive oil, uh, extra virgin olive oil has plenty of saturated fat in it, but because of the other stuff in it, it's good for you. So it's, it's all about oversimplification. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it's not one size fits all. And also, you know, each food is a multiplicity of constituents. And, you know, we tend to break it down to this is a high fat food or a low fat food or this food has monounsaturated fats or, you know, and uh, it's really the package and it's also the diet in its totality. Uh, how close are we? Uh, you know, since you're working with uh, Zoe, now that I'm getting the pronunciation correct, correctly, uh, to some kind of predictive instrument to determine uh, what is the best diet uh, for a given individual. Uh, you know, you work with uh, artificial intelligence. Now we have remarkable tools at our disposal to do metal metabolomics and, you know, high throughput uh, stool analysis uh, and, of course, saliva tests to give us the full array of our genes. Uh, how far along are we in terms of making predictions? We, we've been studying um, thousands of people for the last three years, and we published the first part of these results in, in Nature Medicine in June, which is a, a well-known journal. And um, basically by combining, uh, giving everyone identical foods, uh, making them log all their foods for two weeks, and giving them a, a continuous glucose monitor, measuring their blood fat six hours after food, and measuring their microbes, we could put that together for an individual and with about 80% predictive ability, be able to predict how they would respond to any other food. Hmm. So this is, then uh, that was just the first sort of step at it. We're going to get better, but 80% is already pretty good. And this allows us to uh, give people um, their food scores um, that are personalized for them because we'll be able to say, with this, we know how, you know, your blood sugar will react, your, your, bl your blood fats will react, and this is going to be good or bad for your microbes. So, uh, And you can only do this with these big AI, big data algorithms. It's impossible for anyone to sort that out themselves. And that's 
So we, we now, for the last couple of months, we've actually been running this as a commercial product. People can actually get a home version of this test um, in the US. Um, the company is based in Boston. And um, uh, if people go on the website, joinzoe.com, uh, they can actually test this out. If some of your listeners are actually interested in this, being pioneers in this self-experimentation. But I think it's it really is a, a sign of the future because it's going to get even better. It's going to get uh, even more sophisticated. It's going to get cheaper. And it's going to be something that everybody's going to be doing soon. And I think uh, it's it really going to change the way we think about nutrition uh, because, you know, it isn't simple. It is not. But, you know, if you just work out what foods are good for you and your body and your microbes, then, you know, a lot of these um, difficult decisions and reliance on food labels and the food industry and medical guidelines, you know, go out the window, really. There's this uh, thing, as you're well aware, the glycemic index and the glycemic load. And what they discovered recently, I think, you know, you may have participated in some of the research on this, but some of the lead researchers on this are from Israel. And they demonstrated that it's uh, different strokes for different folks, depending on uh, not just the carbohydrate composition and the fiber composition of the food, but how each person's body interprets the food. Very, very interesting research. We, we can't rely on a simple glycemic index, one size fits all. Yeah. So we did, you know, we, we looked at that in these studies because I said everyone had a glucose monitor, which records that everything for, for two weeks. Uh, and so we had millions of readings and we could see that even when you gave identical twins, the identical muffins and the identical milkshakes and gave them the same foods for two weeks, they responded differently to every meal. Hmm. And so if identical twins are going to respond differently, both in terms of their blood sugar response and their triglyceride response, their inflammation, um, uh, over time, that's going to have a huge effect on your metabolism and your likelihood of gaining weight. Because we really don't want to have these inflammatory spikes going on uh, in our system. So for me, that was quite a revelation to see that not only there was this eightfold difference between uh, individuals in their response. And this is normal people. Right? Mm -hmm. We're not talking about disease people. Normal people in response to the same muffins. Uh, identical twins were also very different. And and uh, I think we, we can now show – we're now showing – not just glucose peaks, but also, you know, some people have dips after eating uh, carbs. That if you're a, if you're a dipper, you end up actually being hungrier uh, three hours later than mm -hmm. someone who doesn't have a dip. Mm -hmm. Which means that for some people, you know, and that comes back to there's another myth really that you think about it for the same for two different people, the same muffin of identical calories has a really different effect. So all calories are absolutely not equal. And I think that these experiments are really showing it to us because in the same way that, you know, highly processed food will give you more hunger, um, you know, perfectly normal food that just doesn't, your body just absorbs far too quickly uh, will also give you these hunger and alertness uh, problems. Uh, and most of us are, you know, we don't know about this. We're, we're happily eating what we're told is healthy and because that's, the standard practice but mm -hmm. for us it just may not be and i've i've totally changed my diet and i've noticed that what i eat and affects me badly my wife can quite happily eat mm -hmm. so it's um 
it's made breakfast time quite different. I end up with a very different breakfast to my wife's now uh, because of you know my own uh, self-discovery over the last few years. And and you talk about this concept uh, in a chapter in your book, spoon-fed calorie counting doesn't add up. And you know we used to take this uh, thermodynamic uh, model, you know, as if we were cars or steam engines. You know, calories in, calories out. You know, the uh, notion that there's a thermodynamic equation and the fuel that we put in uh, is offset by the exercise we do. Uh, but uh, you know, those of us who are deeply involved in nutrition recognize that that's simply it's too simplistic. It is, and, uh, you know, and unfortunately, it is a it's a myth that's persisted and, and really kept the whole diet industry going. And it's also, you know, it, that bit on the label that says low calorie or only you know two hundred calories, it's covering up all the problems of the quality of the food. So it's it's dumbing down nutrition uh, where to a number that. Uh, instead of looking at all the contents and actually saying, actually, this isn't healthy for me, you're focusing on a number that is actually built on sand. There's mm. uh, Only in broad terms is calories useful because we can't measure it as an individual. You can't, even nutritionists, you know, unless they're weighing everything they eat, can't estimate their consumption. And we certainly can't measure how our body burns it accurately, you know. These wristwatches we all wearing these days—they're they're useless at that. There's no uh, there's no way you can do that properly. So you add up the fact that you can't measure it, plus the fact that you've got these problems that different foods of the same calories will give you different effects, um, and the fact that no real calorie restricted diets have worked long term. Really, you can see that we really should ditch the calorie uh, moving forward if we're going to really get to grips with good health and understand food properly. What are the big initiatives that's uh, coming to some extent out of the UK? Because it's uh, the Eat Lancet initiative, uh, which is broadly supported by the World Health Organization, the United Nations and global groups, uh, is the initiative to curtail our intake of animal protein uh, and to move us more towards a sustainable, that's a big word, sustainable diet uh, for the sake of the planet, for the sake of our health. Uh, and again, it's a one-size-fits-all uh, program. Is is that going to ultimately serve the goal it's intended towards? Well, I think it was an important statement that um, you could start equating health with the environment. And um, the, the fact that we haven't really had that strong debate before is, is a testament really to the power of the, the food industry that has huge vested interests in the meat and dairy industry. And um, I didn't believe uh, everything in that report, um, but I think the concept that if now there's, you know, people have given up meat in the past for um, animal cruelty reasons and then uh health reasons and now the big other reason and certainly in the uk which has three times as many uh, vegetarians as the us by the way um uh, is the environment um it, it probably is the single most important thing all of us can do for the planet is actually to reduce our meat eating now i i'm not one to say we should never eat meat and i i personally have meat you know once a month but 
I do think it's an important, very important landmark paper in estimating the, these, these effects. And what I found is that in general, the foods that I think are healthy for us and our gut microbes tend to be also healthy for the planet. And I think if you can get all those ecosystems working together, then you know we can reverse some of the, the harms we've been doing to ourselves and the planet over the last uh, 30 years by our obsession with cheap um, hyper-processed foods and, and snacking and uh, using up a lot of our resources, uh, you know, such as cattle farming, uh, in, in ways that uh, we can now see a potential alternative. Uh, but I don't see it as, you know, just with artificial meat. I really just think all of us need to, need to eat more plants. Right. Uh, and uh, you talk a lot about uh, ultra-processed food uh, in your book. Uh, can you give us a definition of ultra-processed food and why it is, why is it deleterious? What is it about, per se, about ultra-processed food that undermines our, our health? Processed food is what, is the term that used to be used a lot, but virtually everything like milk or cheese or chocolate is processed in some to some extent. Mm -hmm. So ultra-processed is... Ma making peanut butter, taking, for example, is, it's, it's processed, but, you know, it's... It, it's, it's processed, but it's... Good stuff is probably not ultra-processed. Ultra-processed doesn't resemble uh, any of the original ingredients, and it's made from products of products and usually has over 10 ingredients on the label, most of which you wouldn't find in a, in a kitchen. So basically, it's like a, a chemistry uh, set uh, using extracts of all these plants rather than the actual plants themselves so that uh, certainly your, um, your grandparents wouldn't recognize it as food. And I think that's, um, we're still struggling with the exact definitions, but in general, it's something you don't recognize the original ingredients in it, and it contains more than 10 uh, uh, chemical products. And, uh, you know, I think we, we still need to define this. And there are some countries now uh, in South America putting black labels on things that are clearly ultra processed. And telling kids to avoid them because the re we didn't really know why they would be bad. Uh, there was this whole thing in the sort of start in the 80s about E-numbers and uh, additives and things, but people were rather vague about why they were bad for you. But I think we're now understanding why, and I think there's two reasons. One is the effects on the microbiome of all these chemicals mm -hmm. and artificial sweeteners, emulsifiers, that can have deleterious effects on the on the gut microbes themselves because they're not used to be able to eat them. They just haven't we haven't evolved uh, microbes that can do that. And the second is that uh, when you give people two meals or you randomise a trial into two meals, as Kevin Hall and his group at NIH have done, um, so identical calories, same meal. Uh, and you give them a starter meal, uh, one cooked with whole foods, the other ultra-processed foods, and they were similarly pleasant as they rated the same. Uh -huh. The group eating the ultra-processed food felt hungrier quicker. Wow. They came back for seconds. 
they ate more. So basically, it is sending chemicals to your brain to eat much more of it and overeat. Yeah. So they're the two reasons, really, that they've got it. You know, and, and in the U.S., 60% of all meals consumed are ultra-processed. It's wow. the highest in the world. Yeah. And, 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 and among not, the among the cohort, not about poverty. It's just about culture. And, and statistics show that among the cohort of people who are the highest weight or, you know, that have the most susceptibility to obesity, that percentage even goes up because that was, you know, the, that's the average intake across the board. So uh, there definitely is a correlation. Uh, all right. Great stuff. Um, the book is Spoon Fed, Why Almost Everything We've Been Told About Food is Wrong. Uh, the author, our guest today, Dr. Tim Spector, when we return more on food myths and uh, why you should be disabused of them. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and this is the Intelligent Medicine Podcast.